Hi, I'm Dr. Scott. And I'm Dr. Shiloh. And this is LA Not So Confidential, the forensic psychology and true crime podcast. Each week, we explore the intersection of psychology, the criminal justice system, and entertainment. Today, our episode is on the vintage case topic of a murder at Lana Turner's mansion. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks again for showing up and increasing our numbers. We're like got some really great numbers from around the world, which is so exciting. <laughs> we had a great weekend. We did a great, really like wonderful discussion live stream with author Frank Gerardo last weekend covering yeah. his new book, which is entitled Becoming Clark Rockefeller, Murder, Love, Deception, and the Con Man Behind It All. And like Dr. Shiloh and Anna Delvey, I had a hard time stopping talking like Clark Rockefeller after I listened to several of his interviews. Like right. he's so, it's like, if it wasn't a horrific, terrible, terrible crime that was involved in, you know, clearly a double murder that he perpetrated, he would be hilarious because yeah. he's so narcissistic, so self-serving and just and this the, I, I don't why are you talking to me like this i J jane jane i like i i can't i can't aaron 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 why are you asking me that <laughs> yeah asked to be in front of the media after he's convicted and then won't answer anything and just talks in circles right i think the next conference you and i do as our presentation you should talk as anna delvey and i'll talk like clark Rock rockefeller we need to invest in some serious eyewear I know, the big, <laughs> for these two. Uh, what do they call them? Statement glasses, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. It was, I think, one of the best live streams we've done. Maybe just we know Frank and we hadn't right. seen him for so long and he's just so lovely. And even though we like literally just recorded that as we're recording this, we've been getting some good feedback of like, God, that guy's just like so down to earth and cool and yeah. like. You know, we were just chatting. It was really, really nice. So please, that audio will be on Patreon pretty quickly. And then the video will be up on YouTube. So you guys can catch that. So go check it out. And of course, his book will be on our Amazon marketplace yes. as suggestions. Please, please check oh, yeah. out his book. Fantastic writer. Well, well worth your investment. Yeah, definitely one of the LA true crime writers over the last few decades that just continues a legacy of great writers about crime here in LA. So last week was our episode 174, which is crazy, which means today's 175. But that was Sovereign Citizens part one, where we really just laid the foundation of their fringe legal theory, which is basically asserting that they're not subject to the authority of government entities. I mean, I guess that's the simplest way we can put it. Right. But it is a lot crazier than that. Yep. We review some of their wild antics and cover a few legal examples, all to set you up for part two, which is coming out next week. And that will cover the psychological constructs and possible explanations for this type of behavior and some more case presentations, some pretty big high profile cases affiliated with sovereign citizens. So please check that out. People have been loving that one too. You can't wait for the next one on the 21st. Yeah. Well, I'd say we'd also had some mixed reactions. We also got contacted directly by some people who are listeners and going, oh, I have a relative who's fallen fallen down oh, this rabbit yeah. hole. And my heart just goes out to each and every one of them, because as we discuss in those two episodes, it is not diagnosable, but there's something going on with these individuals that really gets them fixated in this belief system. Yeah. It's kind of like when we had 
you know, when we were talking about QAnon and we got a lot of emails of people who had quote unquote, like lost family members to that conspiracy movement. And so we went back and forth with a lot of folks on how to handle that, how yeah. they might want to think about. So for today's episode though, again, yeah, 175, another, it feels like another milestone in a way. We have a vintage case for you. We are talking about the murder that occurred at Lana Turner's mansion. And as our trigger warning today, we will be talking about intimate partner violence, murder, of course, child abuse, adverse childhood experiences, and, you know, just some really bad behavior by some bad people. But also it's interesting because I think as the story gets told over and over and with this Hollywood lens, there ends up being a little victim blamey stuff going on here yeah. that, you know, certainly we're going to stay away from, but in looking at some of the old resources that certainly comes up, which is triggering for me all the time. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. And thank goodness this one is vintage, but it's still so close in time that the people that it involved still have a voice today speaking about it recently, which I think really helps give a True. good perspective on things. But, you know, if you're a fan of classic movies, then you already know who Lana Turner is. If you're not a huge fan, but you're getting into noir, Lana Turner is a great one to start with because she really starred in several sort of seminal noir films after being a very successful, not necessarily child star, but teen star. She was often hailed as the quote unquote sweater girl of Hollywood's golden era. She started on a remarkable journey to her stardom at just age 16. And that kind of both epitomized and glamorized and mythologized stories about Tinseltown. It was always the idea of Lana Turner being discovered at the soda fountain at Schwab's right. pharmacy and soda counter in Hollywood. But sweater girl, where do we uh. where do we get that term from? We'll get back to it in a minute. So Lana was born on February 8th, 1921 in Wallace, Idaho. Like most stars of the time, she had a, a different given name. She was born Julia Jean Turner. Although once her extraordinary trajectory to fame was in motion, the studio went in with a tried and true formula of renaming actors. That seems to work. And there was a method to their madness. She, as a young starlet, needed a more tight and memorable name, one that was simultaneously generic and glamorous and marketable within the industry, and most importantly at the time, which I was not aware of until doing this research, the names needed to be easy to pronounce. Oh, yeah. It couldn't be too exotic. It, yeah, it couldn't be too exotic. It, it had to roll off the tongue. Cary Grant, Lana Turner, Judy yeah. Garland. Yeah, those kind of things. God forbid it be ethnic of any sort, right? Right. <laughs> even, yeah, even Rita Hayworth, who was like yeah. you know, a Mexican star, was rebranded and, and mm -hmm. reformed as well. So Lana's parents were still in their teens when she was born, and she was their only child. Her mother was Mildred Frances Cohen, and her father was John Virgil Turner. He was a minor that made very little money for the family. Therefore, he was also... A bit of a con man and sometimes bootlegger. And in 1929, the tragedy in Lana's life began when she was just nine years old and her father was beaten to death after winning money at a card game. His murder was never solved. Turner's mother, Mildred, a hairdresser, tried to raise her daughter alone, but had to leave her with an abusive foster family when money got tight. I mean, she did not know that it was an abusive foster family, of course, but upon learning of the abuse, Mildred immediately took back custody of Lana and in 1936, they took a barely 
operable automobile on down to depression era Los Angeles. So Hollywood media has for years repeated the myth that Turner was discovered at Schwab soda fountain in LA, but that's inaccurate. She was discovered at 16, but not at Schwab's soda fountain counter. Instead, it was another establishment, the top hat cafe, which was situated just a little farther East on sunset Boulevard at McCadden place. This location was directly across the street from Hollywood high school where Turner was still attending as a student. And almost immediately, she was signed by MGM Studios and underwent a complete transformation that just really launched her into the spotlight very quickly. Even as a teenager, Turner had already developed a, a personal style and sense of beauty, charisma, and she had a very unique, sultry voice for such a young woman. And she became very quickly sought after in the exploding industry of the 1930s. So I'm one of those people right now that's getting more into these films. And I really probably couldn't have picked her out from a lineup of the other famous blondes <laughs> right. from this era at yeah. all. You know, I know the name, but in watching some stuff that she's been in lately, she is so striking because like on one hand, you look at her and she's just adorable like she's got these features like the little button nose and just this really cute round face but then you know she can go on full-on femme fatale glam as well it's just like such an incredible chameleon in a way for a hollywood starlet you know she can flip yeah. back and forth and maybe in and not that i was necessarily watching the stuff where she was 16 years old so i don't think it's like the youth on that part of it, but maybe she sort of kept a quality from back then that transferred into her later films. I think it's a really interesting observation and probably true. There were some stars like Judy Garland had a real difficult time transitioning from her childhood roles. Shirley yeah. Temple was not able to do it. But in terms of the blonde thing, it's very interesting because at that time, you know, the 1930s through the early 50s, blonde really was a look that was forced upon many actresses mm -hmm. if they could carry off the coloring for it you know they would go for these you know blondes that didn't really exist in nature very much like right. the platinum blonde the silver blonde one because it photographed well it looked you know it, it lit really well although the chemical processes for hair back then just completely ruined people's heads. It was really bad. The reason we have hair conditioner today is because Marilyn Monroe's hair was so destroyed yeah. by the bleaching process and the hot lights that they had to develop something to protect hair. But it's very interesting that you see, if you watch any of these stars, particularly the females, through their development, through the studio system, you see the studio constantly trying new looks until mm -hmm. they find something that works. And she may have been part of a studio machine, but clearly she had some really very clear talent. One of her earliest roles was in the film, They Won't Forget, that was in 1937, where she portrayed a small town girl caught up in a murder case that scandalized the gossipy community. And this is where she earned the title, the sweater girl that I referred to earlier. And that secured her status as a symbol of both femininity and sexuality in the eyes of moviegoers. And in this very pivotal scene, she's playing a character named Mary Clay and she wore a very form-fitting sweater. So she's young, but it's a form-fitting sweater. And there's a very innocent, but interpreted as provocative pose that she makes, which is a lean. And it really, it's not like the super, super accentuated look, but it's definitely sexual. And as you make an observation later on, 
it's a, a little bit more adult than would be done for a 16 year old today, I think. Yeah. So like, is she wearing one of those pointy bras <laughs> that they wore under their sweaters? <laughs> Well, that, that was, was like a little 50s, bit later, right? right. Yeah. yeah, the the sort of the the missile missile nosed, super sharp was a little bit later. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, whatever it was and however they dressed her, I certainly think that this doesn't age well because one, you know, the studio comes up with this nickname for her of sweater girl, kind of like it girl, right? Right. But it's calling, based on a piece of Calling attention to it, right? Yeah. They're calling oh, it like the it totally. girl means sexuality. Like when they're, was that Clara Bow, the it girl? I'm not sure. I'm I not think sure. it may have been Clara Bow, but like, yeah, it's all connoting something that's a little bit lascivious, I believe. Well, and then you go and watch the film and she's not in it for very long. And her character, this 16 year old, is raped and murdered in the film and they're choosing to sexualize her for publicity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. I mean, for all of that, we talked about this in other vintage episodes about the Hayes code yeah. that was ostensibly trying to stamp down, I guess like, well, like overt violence and overt sexuality, but the parameters for subject matter when it came to age and sexuality, that in itself was more flexible. And I think the, what you're talking about is a perfect example of that. Yeah. So Turner's portrayal of the character, coupled with her striking appearance, nonetheless, catapulted her into fame virtually overnight. And I love that even Turner later in her autobiography describes her movie debut in this film. And she says, I was just a 15 year old kid with a bosom and a backside strolling across the screen. <laughs> so well, she's like, I don't know. It worked. <laughs> right. And there's an interesting contradiction right there, because all of the myth talks about her being discovered at age 16, sitting at the soda counter. And 16 versus 15 is a big mm. difference in state law at that time, right? You could think of the 16 yes. year old as eligible to be married and it's appropriate, but what she's revealing subtly is like, no, I wasn't 16, I was actually 15. Yes, because she was one that kind of toyed with what year she would say she was born. Right. So. You know, whether that was done right at the beginning or um, at the end, <laughs> or if they, the studios had her <laughs> change it, I don't know. But her performance garnered critical acclaim and set the stage for her ascent to stardom. But it was her role in Love Finds Andy Hardy in 1938, opposite Mickey Rooney, that really catapulted her to national prominence. As a paragon of Girl Next Door, Turner captivated audiences with her charm and innocence, solidifying her status as a rising star. So throughout the late 1930s and early 1940s, in romantic comedies to dramatic thrillers, she was showcased and showing her range and clearly was just a box office draw. It hit very quickly for her. In films like Zigfield Girl in 1941 and Johnny Eager in 1942, it then established her at the next level of her career. She was established as a leading lady rather than just all these support roles. And she was also now getting critical acclaim and a lot of good reviews, accolades, you know, all of these things building a solid foundation for a, a long and illustrious career, basically. And her management and direction by the studio for all the challenges that came with it came with a very carefully chosen parade of characters for her to portray that transitioned her from the sweet girl next door to the sultry femme fatale of noir movies like The Postman Always Rings Twice. 
All right. So turning to her off-camera life, she appeared to have incredibly bad luck in the area of love. Yeah. Her first marriage to band leader Artie Shaw was brief and calamitous. Shaw, as reported by The Atlantic, was previously engaged to actress Betty Grable when he impulsively married Turner in Las Vegas. However, their relationship quickly deteriorated and Turner, only 19 at the time, filed for divorce a few months later, citing Shaw's infliction of, quote, severe mental anguish. Despite her setbacks, Turner ventured into love again, but enduring happiness remained elusive. In 1942, she married restaurateur Steve Crane, only to discover their marriage wasn't even valid due to Crane's unresolved divorce. Although their first attempt was annulled, they remarried in 1943 while Turner was pregnant with their daughter, Cheryl. However, the arrival of the child failed to salvage their relationship, leading to Turner filing for divorce in 1944. Although Turner was finding great success in films like Slightly Dangerous and The Postman Always Rings Twice in the mid-1940s, her personal life continued to be tumultuous. Despite these setbacks, Turner remained hopeful in love, embarking on a relationship with fellow actor Tyrone Power in 1946. However, Power, like Crane, was still married, and Turner, now pregnant again, opted to terminate her pregnancy to avoid a scandal and their romance ended in heartbreak. But seemingly undeterred by failed relationships, Turner once again tied the knot with tin plate heir Henry J. Bob Topping in April 1948. Despite an initial honeymoon phase, the marriage soured due to Topping's gambling and financial woes, leading to divorce in December of 1952, making the four-year marriage her longest to date. Despite her personal struggles, Turner's acting career continued to thrive. In 1953, she married Lex Barker, renowned for his Tarzan films. However, their union was marred by allegations of Barker's sexual abuse toward Turner's young daughter, Cheryl. Cheryl first told her grandmother about the abuse, and the grandmother told Lana. Turner reportedly confronted Barker by putting a gun to his head as he slept. She kicked him out of the house and divorced him, ending another disastrous marriage. Later as an adult, Cheryl reported that Barker first molested her when she was just 10 years old in the family sauna and that the abuse progressed to violent rapes throughout his marriage to her mother. Okay, so I'm just mentally exhausted considering all of these marriages and relationships. I don't know how she did this with an amazing career. Vanity Fair said that Lana, quote, comes across as a fundamentally good-hearted but woefully gullible romantic, someone who bought into the Hollywood star system hook, line, and sinker. Lana, in her autobiography, speculated that the trauma of the murder of her charming gambler father may have led to her many obsessive love affairs. After all of this, Turner became involved with Johnny Stompanato, a mobster linked to Mickey Cohen's criminal network, marking yet another ill-fated chapter in her romantic history. So I do want to take a moment before we get into the crime of the decade, as it were, yeah, to say maybe give her a little bit of defense after all these toxic relationships she's yes, been in. Let's talk about there's it. A, there's a lot of indication that Stompanato, that we're going to be talking more about, completely misrepresented himself intentionally in order to get into her life. So perhaps yeah. her radar was wrong, but in this case, she really fell for someone who was intentionally portraying himself as someone different because in 1958, 
her entire glamorous Hollywood life was just shattered in a brutal form, particularly brutal because it included her daughter and her then lover at the aforementioned Johnny Stompanato. With her history of multiple marriages and high profile romances, she now found herself at the center of a media storm when her violent and unpredictable lover was fatally stabbed by her then 14-year-old daughter. So Stompanato had a long history with organized crime that led to multiple brushes with the law, including arrests for vagrancy and suspicion of robbery at the, the least. Those are the smallest things he was accused of. And despite his criminal ties, he was able to navigate his way through the glamorous parties of the Hollywood elites. He was dark, brooding, and handsome. He became romantically involved with former actress Helene Stanley, whom he later married. And in an excerpt from Cheryl Crane's biography, she states, Johnny had B-picture good looks, thick-set, powerfully built, and soft-spoken, and talked in short sentences to cover a very poor grasp of grammar and spoke in a deep baritone voice. With friends, he seldom smiled or laughed out loud, but he seemed always coiled, holding himself in. He had hooded, watchful eyes that took in more than he wanted anyone to notice. His wardrobe on a daily basis consisted of roomy draped slacks, a silver buckled skinny leather belt, and lizard shoes. Throughout the 1950s, Stampanato's criminal activities continued, marked by arrests and associations with notorious figures. But let's go back a little bit. He was born John Stampanato Jr. into an Italian-American family in Woodstock, Illinois. His mother died shortly after his birth, leaving him to be raised by his father and stepmother. He attended Kemper Military School before serving in the U.S. Marines during World War II. And after the war, he married Sarah Utush in China, but later left her and their son to pursue this turbulent life in Hollywood. As mentioned before, he was briefly married to actress Helen Stanley before immersing himself in the city's underworld, working as a bodyguard for gangster Mickey Cohen, and he oversaw aspects of his illicit activities here in L.A. So while all of that's going on for him, Lana Turner's life is and career is still basking in the limelight, and she was navigating all these complex interpersonal relationships that you covered earlier. But despite or perhaps because of all of these relationship dramas, this really only added to her high profile persona in Hollywood because a little scandal never hurt anybody. And it only constantly brought media attention to what was going on with her, which was, you know, a way to keep her in the news as well as her pictures being released. Her daughter, Cheryl, however, grappled with feelings of neglect and yearned for her mom's affection. And in a profile article published by People magazine in 1988, Cheryl offered a really vivid picture of her desperate attempts as a child to make a connection with what she considered to be a distant mother. In the interview and in segments from her book, she admits to resorting to visits to the interior of her mother's closet just to, quote unquote, inhale her essence. Mm. Very sad. so sad. I know. Amidst his association with organized crime, Stompanato developed a reputation for his romantic pursuits, particularly among Hollywood starlets. His attention soon turned to Lana. It was during this tumultuous period that Stompanato, using the alias John Steele, embarked on a relentless pursuit of Turner, showering her with incessant phone calls, letters, and lavish gifts, including flowers, jewelry, and even a commissioned portrait, Stompanato spared no effort in courting the iconic actress. However, upon discovering Stompanato's true identity, 
Turner confronted him only to receive a chilling assertion of possession and control by him. Reportedly, Stompanato declared, if I'd revealed who I really was, you would not have had anything to do with me. Now that I have you, I'll never let you go. And a statement like that clearly indicates a great deal about the intensity and volatility of their relationship. And unfortunately, Stompanato's aggression continued to escalate with reports of physical abuse towards Turner and threats directed at both her and Cheryl. Turner's attempt to break free from the toxic dynamic came during her filming in England, where she sought to distance herself from him. In 1957, tensions peaked when Stompanato became consumed by jealousy over Turner's connection with future James Bond actor Sean Connery. Stompanato took a drastic action. He flew to London and made his way to the set of Another Time, Another Place, and reportedly he confronted Connery with a gun seeking to assert his dominance. However, Connery, as I could totally imagine, standing... (laughs) as an imposing six foot two with a background in bodybuilding and martial arts, swiftly disarmed Stompanato by bending his hand back. And the incident led to Stompanato's expulsion from the UK after the police intervened. Can you imagine it? Stop it, Stompanato. Oh my God, I picture this. Picture this so many times in my head. (laughs) And also we can't let it drop also that is as gifted an actor as... uh, Sean Connery was and prolific as an actor and many wonderful iconic roles. He had a lot of problems in his views toward women. So yeah. just didn't want to let that fall between the cracks, but back to Stompanato or Stompanato, the tension reached a real boiling point back in LA as Turner planned to sever her ties with him for good. And on the night of the 1958 Academy Awards, Lana and Cheryl returned to their room at the Beverly Hills hotel and Johnny was there waiting. A heated altercation ensued, and Johnny remained in their lives just a little bit longer, with Lana refusing to go to the authorities. Less than a week later, on April 4th, 1958, Lana planned on breaking up with Johnny for good this time at her Beverly Hills residence. In later court proceedings, Turner asserted that she warned her daughter, I'm going to end it with him tonight, baby. It's going to be a rough night. Are you prepared for it? From Cheryl's upstairs bedroom, she heard the regular and expected tone of arguments growing more heated and intense. Lana testified that she told Johnny, tonight, mister, I'm giving you your walking papers. I'm through with you. It's over. He grabbed me by the arms and started shaking me and cursing me very badly and saying that if he said jump, I would jump. If he said hop, I would hop. And I would have to do anything and everything he told me, or he'd cut my face or cripple me. Stompanato continued to fly into a rage and loudly threatened to murder Turner, Turner's mother, and daughter Cheryl. Cheryl, who was listening to the entire argument from her upstairs bedroom, immediately fueled by an instinct to protect her mother, the terrified young woman ran downstairs, then to the kitchen, and grabbed the only weapon she could find, a six-inch butcher knife. She then crept up to the bedroom door, where her mother and Stompanato were arguing. In her courtroom testimony, Turner stated, I was walking towards the bedroom door and he was right behind me. And I opened it and my daughter came in. I swear it was so fast. I, I truthfully thought she had hit him in the stomach. The best I can remember, they came together and they parted. I still never saw a blade. In a sudden movement of opening the door, Crane asserts that she saw a gun in Stompanato's hand, later revealed to be a clothes hanger that she had misidentified. And Cheryl writes of the incident, the door flew open. Mother stood there, her hand on the knob. 
He was coming at her from behind, his arm raised to strike. I took a step forward and lifted the weapon. He ran onto the blade. It went in. In. For, for three ghastly heartbeats, our bodies fused. He looked straight at me, unblinking, and said, my God, Cheryl, what have you done? In the aftermath of Stompanato's death, Turner sought legal counsel from prominent Hollywood attorney Jerry Geisler, known for his defense of high-profile figures. Geisler strategized to protect Turner and Cheryl, crafting a narrative of self-defense amidst swirling rumors and speculation surrounding the circumstances of Stompanato's demise. Subsequent police investigation was big news in Hollywood and put a tight lens on the complexities of family loyalty and the blurred lines between self-defense and premeditated violence. During the investigation and legal proceedings, Cheryl's confession and Turner's supporting testimony all continue to assert the story of a daughter acting in primal impulse to protect her mother. Turner provided a compelling testimony resulting in a coroner's jury rendering a unanimous verdict of justifiable homicide that absolved Crane of criminal culpability. Crane, at her own request, was entrusted to the care of Turner's mother, marking a poignant resolution to the legal proceedings. The Los Angeles Times opined that Cheryl was blameless, but took Turner to task as a hedonist whose life story showed, quote, the lack of almost any reference to moral sensitivity in the presence of a child. Cheryl isn't the juvenile delinquent. Lana is, close quote. Yeah, Man. that was from 1958. Right, right after the trial. Very, very mm -hmm. pointed and damning in that statement, I think. So following Stompanato's death rumors, just gossip swirled all over Los Angeles' underworld circles with whispers suggesting that at least one mobster held Sean Connery accountable for the altercation. Fearing potential retribution, Sean Connery reportedly went into temporary hiding to evade any potential threats to his safety. In all the years that follow, Cheryl understandably grappled with the emotional fallout from the traumatic incident, as she detailed in her candid autobiography entitled Detour, A Hollywood Story, which was published in 1988. In very frank revelations, Cheryl disclosed allegations of sexual abuse at the hands of Stompanato, adding additional layers to the complexities of her relationship with Turner's ill-fated lover. Cheryl had additional episodes that remanded her to juvenile detention and psychiatric facilities, and those stemmed from her running away episodes from her grandmother's home. She also had periods of struggling with substance abuse, but eventually found great stability in working alongside her father in his Hollywood restaurant. And in that stable environment, she was able to recover from the burden and trauma of sexual assault and a defensible but violent crime and all of the notoriety that came with it. Cheryl eventually found solace in forging her own path on her own terms, and she eventually found love and fulfillment in her marriage to Jocelyn Leroy, a successful model. And then she also had her own successful career as a real estate agent in Hawaii. Throughout her life, she's maintained her stance that she alone bore responsibility for Stompanato's death, driven solely by the need to protect her mom from an abusive partner. There's no surprise at all that she faced challenges throughout the next decades of her life and looking at her experiences through the lens of adverse childhood experiences, which includes but is not limited to the following points, witnessing domestic violence, sexual abuse, parental separation or divorce, physical or emotional neglect. All of these point to it being pretty clear that she had a rough time as a child. In the aftermath of Stompanato's death, Turner continued her acting career, achieving significant success with roles in productions like Imitation of Life, 
Her legacy endured through various roles in theater and television until her passing in 1995. I'd also say that Imitation of Life is another really great movie where she is ostensibly the lead, but makes a great amount of room for the performances by people of color, which is very significant mm. for that time in film. So, and I don't remember this clearly from my research and we didn't put it in here, but doesn't Imitation of Life follow some narrative sort of similar to what happened with Stompanato? There's a little bit of it there, but more okay. of it is focused on that she is a successful a successful woman who has a live-in housekeeper mm -hmm. and the housekeeper and her daughter reside at the home. The daughter is black and becomes Lana's daughter's best friend. But there's this tension between even though that daughter can pass as white, she's still black. And she it's about struggling yeah. with class and race and socioeconomic status and, you know, bad choices made by impulsive kids. I mean, it's really progressive and interesting movie for the time. I'm not saying across the board, it's great, but it's, it makes some good points. Hmm. Okay. There's still debate today as to what actually happened that night. Well, maybe not so much debate as much conjecture, but prolific true crime author, Casey Sherman, a New York times, USA today and wall street journal, bestselling author in his recently published book, I mean, recent as of just like last month, I haven't, it's not on audio yet, so I didn't get to read it before it's a, we Right, it's about to come down, but excerpts <laughs> are out there that we pulled from. Yeah, yeah. So his new book is titled A Murder in Hollywood, The Untold Story of Tinseltown's Most Shocking Crime. Sherman asserts the following, quote, I strongly believe Lana Turner killed Johnny Stompanato, but I think she did so in the ultimate attempts to protect her family, her mother and her daughter, he says. He goes on to say, I think when Johnny Stompanato threatened to kill Cheryl, as you read about in the book, and kill Mildred, Lana was painted into a corner and Lana had to fight back. I can't wait to read this book because I really want to see how he dives into this, pulling back all these years later, because it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, when she found out that that other asshole was molesting her daughter, she put a gun to his head as he was sleeping. It was like, get the fuck out. <laughs> yeah, there are some good points that are taken. And there's also that, and again, it's all conjecture. I think that Sherman, I mean, it's not, it's not something that I think. It's very clear that Sherman is a prolific and well-respected and awarded author. Yeah. And he's not writing a lot of schlock, you know, so right. he, he may have a very valid point. It is like, it is interesting. Like, do we, at this point, does it really matter? Do we need to, I mean- you know, Cheryl is still alive. Right. You know, no, and I would sure. I would like for her to like have a life that is just free from this incident of mm -hmm. both her, her mother and her grandmother being at danger by this violent, violent criminal. But yes, I mean, it, it yes. is interesting. And there's also like if Lana Turner was the person who committed this crime, would she have been able to have any kind of defense for it as an adult? I That's don't know. another question, right? I don't know, but there's so many questions. So we decided to bring you a little piece of looking at the research of children who do kill abusive adults. Right. Just, I mean, obviously Lana and Cheryl's story is totally an outlier, right? Just because of the high profile nature and how it went down. That's not 
the norm, if you will, as, as we kind of look into the research and see what happens with these kids. So right. just a little bit for you guys. Yeah, because in, in the earlier section on Lana's upbringing, I think that you highlighted some very important factors that impacted her future relationship history. When she was placed in that horrible foster care situation, she likely either experienced assault or violence or she witnessed domestic violence. And then she was also thrown into a very adult world early on. And while we don't have any direct evidence about her being further traumatized by the Hollywood movers and shakers, that's not something that she particularly revealed. There are a lot of actresses from that era that have come forward with really disturbing stories about sexual assault and coercion perpetrated by the studio heads. You know, even with the golden age of Hollywood's level of megastar and highly profitable statuses, actors were still extremely vulnerable to the rules laid down by the powerful handful of men who ran the studios. MGM head Louis B. Mayer, along with Harry Cohn of Columbia Pictures and Jack Warner of Warner Brothers, were just a few of the men that were well known to be utilizers of the casting couch, where wannabe actors and actresses were coerced with unwanted sexual demands with the potential return of the promise of stellar careers. What is, I heard one time somebody was, it was, there's sort of an apocryphal story in Hollywood that somebody was asking about very frankly in a, an acting class about sleeping their way to the top. And the, the teacher responded, well, make sure you get the part first, <laughs> you know, don't, don't <laughs> yeah. put out without right? anything there. But I don't know that that's a little bit of an inappropriate joke for what women were actually experienced. Of course. Shirley Temple even asserted in her memoir that a producer had exposed himself to her when she was 12 years old. And she wasn't the only one. Patricia Douglas was raped by a sales executive in a 1937 party that was happening for the studios. And when she tried to take legal action, the MGM system just absolutely weaponized the media against her to vilify her until she just ended up being exhausted and dropping the charges. And of course, Judy Garland was signed to an exclusive agreement with MGM at just age 13 in 1935. And she was immediately put to work with an unbelievably emotionally demanding and physically exhausting schedule of singing and dance rehearsals. Actors, no matter the age, were regularly required to work six days a week, many times up to 18 hours a day. And shortly before her really sad death at age 47 from an overdose. Garland stated, they'd give us pills to keep us on our feet long after we were exhausted. They'd take us to the studio hospital and knock us out with sleeping pills. I remember Mickey Rooney sprawled out on one bed and me on the other. And then after four hours, they'd wake us up and give us the pet pills again so we could work 72 hours in a row. Oh, it's so gross. Interesting. Any- interesting too, because you know the industry had really demonized Katherine Heigl for her mm-hmm. Grey's Anatomy departure. Mm-hmm. And now over a decade later, like literally almost 20 years later, everyone's coming forward and said, no, she was absolutely right. We were worked like dogs. We had no lives. We were exhausted and we were just pushed, pushed, pushed with this really inhumane work schedule. You know, what's what's the money worth if you are falling apart, if it's going to have a, a impact on your health? And she was really vilified for years. Right. Yeah. We have the uh, assessment for uh, adverse childhood experiences, but it's like there needs to be one for Hollywood adverse child experiences. Yeah. Good point. So in more recent decades, there's been increased empathy towards youth who take drastic measures against abusive parents, reflecting 
a broader recognition of the pervasive issues of child abuse. Statistical trends indicate that sons are more inclined than daughters to retaliate violently. And according to Ronald Ebert, a senior forensic psychologist at McLean's Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts, this gender disparity may be attributed to men's tendency to externalize their emotions and resort to aggression, while girls often internalize their pain and tend to blame themselves. Abused girls frequently exhibit harmful coping mechanisms such as eating disorders or suicidal ideation. Typically, the child who resorts to matricide or patricide is between 16 to 18 years old and comes from a white middle-class background. Research also shows that despite possessing above average intelligence, their academic performance may lag. Of course, like we expect to see that with children who experience abuse. And while generally well-adjusted within school and community settings, they often experience social isolation and lack close friendships. They typically have no prior involvement with law enforcement before the killing of a parent or abusive adult. Isn't that interesting? It's almost like the male minor version of snapped because like we Mm -hmm. say, no one ever snaps. The pathway to violence is an evolutionary process. And this fits that model that you're describing so perfectly. It's interesting because the primary target for these youths who perpetrate these crimes, the the target is primarily the father, typically the father, usually a biological or a step parent rather than an adoptive or foster parent, interestingly enough. And the weapon of choice is commonly, no surprise at all, a firearm that is kept in the household. And unlike children who exhibit outward signs of mental disorders and aggression towards strangers or non-abusive caregivers, these individuals can typically display no indicators at all. Instead, their actions are perceived as like a a desperate attempt at self-preservation stemming from a sense of hopelessness and helplessness. I think that's a perfectly apt description of what Cheryl Crane has been asserting totally for decades, really. Yeah. It really is. And Dewey Cornell, a forensic psychologist at the University of Virginia, notes that while these youth may recognize the quote unquote moral wrongness of their actions, they also feel trapped and they perceive that there is no other way out. There is no viable alternative to the situation that they're in. In their minds, eliminating their tormentor is perceived as a rational, although drastic and definitely definitive end means of escaping their dire circumstances. In 2017, an Australian researcher conducted a case review focusing on incidents where children had fatally injured the abusive male partners of their mothers. Approximately 13 homicides per year in Australia involved children committing parricide, with fathers being the primary victims, of course. And that the perpetrators are typically adult children of the victims, although around 11% of parasites are committed by children aged 10 to 17. Children typically engage in domestic homicide due to one of three risk factors. One, severe mental illness. Two, dangerously antisocial behavior. Or this third category is a result of being victims of severe abuse themselves. 
Research indicates that children raised in violent households often suffer similar violence to their mothers and can be psychologically and emotionally traumatized. So of the 13 cases examined in Australia, the children involved were predominantly boys, nine of them, and four of them were girls, ranging in age from 15 to 21. And these offenses occurred between going back all the way to 1909 and up to the 1950s. Most of the victims were fathers with two boyfriends and one stepfather also included. These men subjected the women and children to severe and ongoing violence, including verbal abuse, beatings, and attacks with weapons. Family members testified to the brutality they endured with mothers commonly reporting threats from the men to kill them and their children. It's an interesting study, even if we consider that it's a small sample size. I am really sort of intrigued by the fact that they went for such a long period of time. Like that's over a hundred years, basically looking at reported crimes. And it just makes me think that there's probably a lot more that fell between the cracks that they weren't able to identify as potentially to be used within that study. So the case review found that formal intervention prior to these homicides was minimal with only two of the male abusers being held accountable by the state for their violent behaviors. In many instances, the violence escalated until the children felt compelled to act in defense of themselves or their mothers, and of course, resulted in tragic outcomes. But what's really interesting is that the primary cause of death in most of these cases were, not surprisingly, gunshot wounds. But Often, maybe surprising for Australia, right? Wow, good point. <laughs> Yeah. Although I'll be, so the, the, in, the research that you found indicated that they were ex service weapons. Right. So that further pulls down the sample size with an additional factor of they were either military or law enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. Because probably military, I'm guessing. And, and I don't know the rules on this back to 1909, but in Australia, police officers aren't allowed to bring their weapons home. They yeah. have to leave them at work. So it's probably military mostly. Well, some children are reported to have used weapons that they had been previously threatened with by their fathers or stepfathers or been threats against their mothers, just mm. illustrating like a, a real grim irony. It reminds me a lot of the neo-Nazi that was like really huge in the news for a while. Like he was just, here's a well-spoken Nazi, you know, here in the US and he gets just murdered by his kid with his own weapon. Yeah. And then all this history of abuse comes out that he was yeah. not like this, you know, family loving Nazi. Interesting, interesting stuff. Almost all the children were charged with murder, although in two cases, charges were dropped following coroner's inquiries where the deaths were deemed justifiable or accidental. And surprisingly, all male juries acquitted the defendants in all cases, despite the possibility of alternative manslaughter charges. And this just further highlights the challenges of addressing cases of domestic violence and their intersection with family homicides within the legal system, not just in Australia, but here in the right. U.S. as well, clearly. Interesting stuff. I mean, you know, it, at the end of the day, yes, this was definitely a small sample size and generally you know, the child perpetrators in these cases look different than a Hollywood star's daughter. But when you get down to the nitty gritty of how these kids were feeling, you know, we're talking about kids with underdeveloped brains that are 
like you said, kind of feeling like they're painted into a corner where this makes sense. This is going to stop the violence that hasn't been stopped before. And sometimes you just need to do something different and drastic to give you and your parent, your other victim parent, any hope of surviving. Yeah, I mean, this even goes back, it is very sad. And it goes back to even our previous documentary review regarding the young boy that was kidnapped by his dad and just isolated and abused and left basically with no no interaction with anybody else. And Mm -hmm. he took brutal action against his dad and, you know, was able to get his life back on track. I mean, again, we're not justifying violence in this way, but I think that like the Australian uh, study sort of points out is that we have a real lack in providing interception and intervention of these types of behaviors when there's familial abuse that's yeah. chronic, that's severe, that you know impacts these kids. And and just to clarify what you said before anybody comes for us, we didn't when you said underdeveloped, we're talking about just normal procedure. I mean, the, the normal progress of development of a human's brain goes through many stages. And one of the things that happens when kids are not fully developed is impulsivity because you haven't completely gelled all your executive functioning in the frontal lobes. Yeah. So I I think we do touch on it more in our episode on, I just killed my dad documentary review and our documentary review of the Menendez and Menudo film. So if you want more discussion about that, (laughs) please go back and listen to that. But just, I want to recap the three books that we talked about today. If folks want any further reading on this story. So Lana Turner's autobiography came out in 1983. It's called Lana, the lady, the legend, and the truth. And then Cheryl Crane's book came out in 1988. And that was Detour, a Hollywood story. And then the new book that came out or is coming out is A Murder in Hollywood, the untold story of Tinseltown's most shocking crime by Casey Sherman. Awesome. We got you the latest books on these. We also include in our show notes, some links to websites that tell like alternative stories and give some alternative background. So I think that they should be taken with a grain of salt, but I do think that they're important to read for more background information on Stompanato yeah. because that, ne- that isn't necessarily covered in all of the books about his ties to the criminal world. And a lot of these articles are a, a lot more forward with those, with that information. Then again, mm-hmm. don't know if it's verified or factual, but it is interesting when we look at the big picture. Stampinato himself, and we should be really fair in saying this because we're we're being forward with, hey, Lana Turner had seven marriages and they didn't work out, right? Right. right. So did Stampinato. And he was abusing and leaving women all over the world. You know, met yeah. a Muslim child basically in China, married her, had a kid abandoned them and then went through several other relationships. So it wasn't just Lana's relationship issues. It was clearly Stompanato had a pretty profound, complex constellation of characteristics. (laughs) I was just going to say track record, but you put it so much more eloquently. (laughs) So thank you guys so much for going along with us on this vintage journey again this month. We got some things coming up. We have a watch party on Saturday, March 9th at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. All the instructions are on our live events page of the website, and those are linked in the show notes. We always have just a great time with that. We have running commentary in the chat section. 
with bits of trivia about all of the players in the movie, as well as the history of the movie. And what else? And of course, we're going to be watching The Postman Always Rings Twice. Yes. Twice? Did I say twice? Twice? Yes. Okay. I said it weird. <laughs> twice, I, twice. I'm tired, even though this is a short episode. <laughs> it is a short episode, but we're recording twice, twice. an hour earlier than we usually do. So that's, it's almost that's like daylight it. saving time. That's why we've been <laughs> mucking around so much. When you start saying words and you're saying them normal, but they sound like they're coming out weird, you know, <laughs> right. something's off. <laughs> right. Cool. Yeah. Please join us, you guys. And next week you'll have part two of Sovereign Citizens. Exactly. So I'm sure we'll have more information on Sovereign Citizens for a live stream at some point. And we just did get confirmation that a really good friend of mine, Steve Cubine, from his own podcast, Beneath the Hollywood Sign, will join us on a live stream to give the Hollywood information in depth on this particular case. So we're really oh, cool. looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be in March as well. We don't have a date yet, but we'll let you guys know. But till then, we'll see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye, Bye. folks. Bye. sincerely thank you for spending some time with us today. LA Not So Confidential is part of the Crawl Space Media Network in partnership with Glassbox Media. Each episode is hosted, produced, and written by Dr. Scott and Dr. Shiloh. Our post-production editing and sweetening magic is handled by the multi-talented Jason Usri of Ear Cult Productions. The LA Not So Confidential theme entitled Cool Vibes Film Noir is composed and performed by the talented Kevin McLeod. He graciously allows us to use his music via a Creative Commons attribution license. And you can check out all of Kevin's amazing work on YouTube. All of the resources for each episode can be found on our website at la-not-so-confidential.com. You can find us on Instagram at LA Not So Podcast, on Twitter at LA Not So Pod, and on Facebook at LA Not So Confidential. Media inquiries and bookings are scheduled at alienistentertainment at gmail.com. Please join us each month on Saturdays at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for a live streaming and very interactive broadcast on YouTube entitled Behind the Couch. Stay tuned to all of our social media for our live streaming scheduling announcements. Subscribe to LA Not So Confidential so you never miss a new episode. And lastly, we'd be honored if you joined our Patreon at patreon.com slash LA Not So Podcast. With a subscription, you get an ad-free listening experience and you'll be the first notified about upcoming live events, social gatherings, and super cool swag coming your way. Thanks for listening and join in with us next time on LA Not So Confidential. Bye folks. <laughs>